In the spring of 2018, the world got to see in vivid technicolor the full Brennan. That's the phrase that John Brennan, the former director of the CIA, uses to describe his own outbursts of explosive Irish temper, something well known to his colleagues, but usually, though not always, hidden from public view. What set Brennan off in this instance was President Trump's gloating over the firing of FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, somebody the president perceived as a deep state enemy. When the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude, and political corruption becomes known, wrote Brennan on Twitter, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history. Now Brennan has written a book, Undaunted, in which he lays out his case against President Trump, while at the same time offering a colorful and revealing account of his 25-year career at the CIA, his tenure as President Obama's Homeland Security Advisor, and later as Director of the Spy Agency. We'll talk to Brennan about his book and the controversy surrounding his public criticism of the president on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent of Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I have experienced the full Brennan, not directly, not in his presence, but um, I remember after writing a story or two about CIA torture, a sensitive subject uh, for Brennan, and one which he talks about in his book, and Suddenly, Dean Boyd, who was then his chief public affairs officer at the CIA, just started exploding at me, deriding me as one of the worst journalists in Washington who would never be uh, get anything further from the CIA ever again. And uh, the only explanation I could come up with for Boyd's outbursts, since there was really nothing wrong with the stories that I had written, is that Brennan had exploded at him. So this was a derivative full Brennan. You know, I've seen uh, Brennan's uh, temper flare as well. Um, I spent some time reporting on him and interviewing him for my uh, book about Obama's war on terror, killer capture. And he was, of course, a central character in that book. I remember interviewing him in the White House and the TV was on and there was some, you know, Republican House Intel Committee hearing and they were trashing the administration, being pretty political about it. And I just remember him looking up and just saying, those knuckleheads. Uh, he was pretty angry. He, he's a fascinating character. And I got to think that some of that anger comes from the fact that here's a guy who grew up in you know, an Irish Catholic family in New Jersey, kind of working class roots. He wanted to be a priest. In fact, he wanted to be the first American pope, which didn't happen. He ends up being CIA director. 
all CIA directors, you know, live in kind of morally ambiguous worlds and have to do things that are, you know, going to be questioned in terms of the you know, ethics and, and morality. And, you know, John Brennan, to his credit, writes about this pretty honestly in this new memoir. Two big issues for him. One was the drone program, which he presided over. And, you know, he, he defends that program. But I have to say, he I think he spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, I remember hearing that he studied, uh, you know, St. Augustine and, and Thomas Aquinas on just war theory to help puzzle through the ethics of uh, targeted killings. But the other big one, which he writes about in the in the book, is uh, the uh, the torture program, which he knew about and was sickened by when he started reading these uh, cables describing what was happening to some of these uh, terror suspects. And at the end of the day, he didn't speak out about it. And I think that tortured him. And so we are now seeing, um, and we'll talk to him about this, him go after Donald Trump, speak publicly about things that he thinks are really terrible. And I guess the question is, having vowed to never stay silent again, is this part of that vow? Yeah. And, you know, there's really something uh, fascinating. I mean, it could make the subject for a great novel of somebody like Brennan, who has this moral streak, grows out of his, you know, Catholic upbringing in a world where, you know, there are uh, moral trade-offs you have to make all the time because, uh, you know, it's the CIA's job to uh, get secrets about other countries uh, and what they're up to and often take measures to thwart threats to the country that involve all sorts of morally ambiguous steps. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, because, you know, I remember at some point he was asked about whether the CIA stealing secrets and he objected to that. He said, well, the CIA doesn't steal secrets. So I think I think that's the CIA's job to steal secrets. Other countries don't willingly give up their secrets to yeah, us yeah. if we ask politely. That's not the way the world works. But so, right? he, yeah, so he's constantly kind of struggling with these uh, these ethical and moral issues. And at the end of the day, I guess, you know, my point of view is, you know, if you're going to have a CIA director who has all of those powers and who operates covertly, I guess you would want someone who at least is is seeing these kinds of decisions in in moral terms. They don't always make the right all the right choices, but at least is grappling uh, with the morality of them. I got to tell my favorite uh, John uh, Brennan story, which is that when I was reporting that book toward the end of it, I needed one more interview with Brennan, and I had made a, an appointment to see him. I think it was a spring, late morning in 2012. I arrive at the White House, and they say, sorry, but Mr. Brennan isn't available. And I'm like, what do you mean he's not available? I flew down from New York for this interview. You know, it's been on the calendar for weeks now, and they said he's not available. And the press person was pretty curt <laughs> about it. And I'm whining about it. And meanwhile, from the corner of my eye, I see the White House gates open, And I see John Brennan walking out, and he's unmistakable because he's this kind of big, hulky figure. And I'm following him, and he's walking into Lafayette Square. And I said, all right, well, I'll, I'll kind of chase him down. And I see he goes and he sits down on a park bench in the middle of the day in Lafayette Square. And I'm like, what in the world is he doing? Well, it turns out that was the morning after... This crazy, I don't know if you remember this, Isagoff, but this crazy 
Iranian plot to kill the Saudi ambassador in the U.S. Involving, oh yeah, of course, at, at Cafe know, Mexican, Milano, right? Mexican, yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And he had been up all night long, apparently, working on this thing. So they canceled my interview. So he sits down on this bench. I'm like spying on him from behind a tree <laughs> to see what he's doing in Lafayette spy Square in the middle of the spy. day. Right. <laughs> and. He pulls out a pack of Merit cigarettes. I always remember they were Merit cigarettes, and he starts chain-smoking them. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? This is the strangest thing I've ever seen. So at that point, I just walk up to him, and I said, hey, Mr. Brennan, it's Dan Clydman from Newsweek. Remember, we had an appointment. We were supposed to talk today. His face turns white, and he stops me, and he says, I hope you're not going to report that I'm smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and I'm like, and I was like, and then he says, because my wife doesn't know that I'm still smoking. And it was kind of this poignant moment. And I did sort of feel for him and sort of realized that, you know, here's a guy who has these, you know, dealing with these life and death decisions, deciding about drone strikes, worked all night on this Iranian plot, and he's stressed out and he's chain smoking merits on a park bench. So I felt for him, and so, you know, my, you know, just the humanity in me thought, okay, well, uh, I don't want to dime him out to his wife, so I'll keep it off the record. I did, however, realize that I had a little bit of leverage. I, I was uh, just going to say, Clyman, you had, you had compromise on the director of the CIA. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the whole and, point of having compromise is you use it for leverage. Which I did. Which okay. I did, by the way, and I said to him, "Well, I I don't need to report this, uh, but <laughs> okay. but I will say you had promised me an interview for today. I think we were scheduled for like you know 45 minutes, and you know the interview was canceled, and it's really important that I get that interview. So uh, you know." Are you going to give me the interview? And he said, yes. And I said, can I have an hour and 15 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yes. And uh, I stuck to my word. I did not report it. And in fact, I have never told this story publicly. I've only told it to a couple of people because it was off the record. So I left the detail out of my book, which was painful because, you know, here was this poignant moment about a uh, high-level national security official who's dealing with enormous, almost unimaginable stress over these life-and-death decisions. And so he sneaks out of uh, the White House to chain-smoke some cigarettes to relieve some of that stress. But I had agreed not to report it. It was off the record. And so for all these years, I have not made it public. And then, lo and behold, I'm you know reading his memoir, and there is a scene where he leaves uh, his office in Langley, goes into the CIA parking lot to smoke cigarettes to deal with uh, the stress that he was under at that particular moment. So his smoking has been officially declassified, and so I am now at liberty to tell this story. And beyond that, he told me that he had lifted the embargo for me personally to tell my anecdote. So, so there it is. You saved it for skullduggery, but I was going to say, well played, well played. Uh, you know, the FSB could could learn from you on how to use uh, Compromot. Anyway, look, there's a lot to talk to Brennan about. You know, he had a quarter century with the CIA. He was uh, two stints in Saudi Arabia. He was there on the seventh floor 
at the top echelon of the agency during uh, 9-11, during um, the run-up to uh, the Iraq war, the drone program. He becomes Obama's uh, Homeland Security Advisor and then, of course, Director. And, you know, people know him most today because he has been the most outspoken of former Obama officials about what he believes Donald Trump is doing to the country. And we will definitely be talking to him about that. So, um, and, I, and I will say, I think it's a pretty good book. Uh, a lot of these memoirs can be kind of rote and templated, but uh, this one, I think, stands above uh, most of these uh, government memoirs that I've read. I think it's well worth reading. Let's get right to the full Brennan. All right, we now have with us the former director of the CIA, John Brennan. Director Brennan, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you so much, Michael. It's good to be with you and Dan today. Look forward to the conversation. I should uh, forewarn you, our goal in this interview is to let our listeners uh, experience the full Brennan, which you talk <laughs> about in the book. So um, we, we hope to get there before we're done. But I want to start out. You've got this new book, Undaunted, and I wanted to focus on the subtitle, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. Now, of course, at the CIA, you were entirely focused on America's enemies abroad. So who did you have in mind when you included at home in the subtitle of the book? Well, as I think has been quite obvious over the last several years, I have had my run-ins with Donald Trump because of what I feel has been his just total disregard for our national security, preferring instead to follow his own personal, political, and financial interests. And so, yeah, I debated on the title. I could have said, you know, foreign and domestic, but uh, I also talk in the book about some of my battles with uh, individuals, particularly in Congress, that I felt uh, fell short in terms of fulfilling their obligations to the country and how many of them again, resorted to just uh, their own politics or tribal politics, putting that in front of our national security. So um, nothing much more than that. I wanted to make sure people understood that uh, I did battle with folks abroad, but I also did battle with folks here in the States. So John, I, I want to ask you a couple of questions about your criticism of, of Donald Trump. But first, just give the listeners who haven't been following you on Twitter just a little bit of a flavor of your broadsides. You've called them Nothing short of treasonous, a despicable, ignorant fool. In the intro that Mike played before, the tweet is, when the full extent of your venality, moral turpitude, and political corruption becomes known, you will take your rightful place as a disgraced demagogue in the dustbin of history. So my first question is, what do you really think? No, just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Two questions. The first is, what was your tipping point? Because you say in the book that even before you'd ever met him, just from having grown up around New York and known of him, you didn't have much respect for him. You said he was thoroughly lacking in principles. He played fast and loose. But once you were exposed to him and you did have a tipping point, didn't you? And where you realized that you needed to speak out against this guy? Well, I think I had several tipping points in terms of my wanting to speak out publicly against him, or at least to take issue with the things he said. Even before I left office and before he uh, was sworn in, he had uh, taken a lot of shots at the intelligence community, to my colleagues, the profession, 
he was basically saying as a result of what uh, the CIA and FBI were doing, he felt as though he was living in Nazi Germany. And I pushed back publicly uh, on that. And then his first full day in office, when he went to Langley, the CIA headquarters, and stood in front of our memorial wall and started to bloviate about the size of his inaugural crowd and engaged in politicking, I really felt that that was a great desecration of that memorial wall. And I spoke out at, at that time. And then over time, there were things that he did that continued to provoke me. I felt as though I needed to say things in defense of my former colleagues, in defense of the national security uh, profession. And you mentioned that uh, I did refer to his actions as nothing short of treasonous when he stood in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin and said to the world that he didn't see any reason why Vladimir Putin and the Russians would have interfered in the 2016 election despite the very strong view of the U.S. intelligence community, the CIA, FBI, NSA, and the Office Director of National Intelligence, that Russia did interfere on Trump's behalf. And so I felt that was a real betrayal, not only of the women and men who serve in the intelligence and law enforcement communities, but also betrayal of his oath of office and betrayal of the American people. So I, I still stand by my... Um, I forecast that he is going to take his rightful place in the dustbin of history, along with other demagogues. <laughs> the other question I want to ask is whether there's a downside. I, I know you've thought about this, and I know others have raised it, but a downside of a former CIA director speaking out so publicly against a sitting president, but in particular this president, because of the possibility that by doing so, you may actually be giving oxygen to his conspiracy theories about there being a deep state, you know, giving kind of traction to some of those conspiracy theories. Is that something that you, you considered at all? How do you, how do you balance those issues? Or is that, was that not a factor at all, something that you don't think is really worth consideration in, in this particular circumstance with this president? Well, I certainly do not disagree that it's highly unusual for a former CIA director CIA director to speak out so publicly and stridently against a sitting president. But I think we'd all agree these are very, very abnormal times, which is why I have spoken out. Mike Hayden has spoken out. Jim Clapper has spoken out. Leon Panetta has spoken out. And a whole raft of other senior national security officials from um, many administrations on both sides of the political aisle have spoken out. And so I don't believe that if I was quiet, that Donald Trump's fueling of those conspiracy theories would have lessened appreciably at all. I just felt as though it was my obligation in light of my work for 33 years in national security to defend my former colleagues and the integrity of the institutions, which are not perfect by any means, but I know that there are individuals out there and, and some of my former colleagues and friends who believe that I shouldn't have been speaking out. And we're all entitled to our own opinions. And I guess uh, after spending so many years trying to defend the freedom of speech that all Americans enjoy, I am now reaping some of the, uh, the, the bounty of it. <laughs> so, look, there's a lot to get to in the book, but a few more beats on Trump and your own experiences with him. Obviously, Trump remains obsessed with the investigations into him and his links to Russia, which you helped generate based on the uh, reports you were getting in the summer of 2016. Now, there's been a lot of talk and anticipation about what John Durham is up to. He is the federal prosecutor appointed by William Barr to investigate how the intelligence agencies and law enforcement, FBI, handled 
those matters. You have had the unique experience of being interviewed by Durham, I think, for up to five hours. Eight hours. Uh, eight hours. Okay. So you must have a pretty good idea at this point of what he is focused on. Can you shed some light on um, the focus of John Durham, at, at least as you experienced it in those eight hours of interviews? Well, I wouldn't call it a focus. I might call it a very broad aperture uh, of his review slash investigation, as you point out, into the origins of the Crossfire Hurricane uh, investigation of Russian interference in the election and what the Trump campaign and people might have been doing. In those eight hours, it covered a broad array of subjects. Uh, and from the intelligence community assessment that was completed in January of 2017, to the different types of actions and activities that I was involved in and others were involved in in the run-up to that. And I thought that he and his team conducted the interview very professionally. Uh, Nora Dennehy, who was his uh, deputy, who has since resigned, according to press reports, because she was very concerned about the potential politicization of this effort. Uh, they asked probing questions. Uh, I like to think that uh, I was as forthcoming and honest. There was no question that I refused to answer. And I'd like to think that they were satisfied with my answers. I was told beforehand and during that interview at the very beginning that I was not a, a subject or a target. I was purely a witness. And they seem to be, again, gathering as much uh, information, insight, and perspective as possible on that entire period of time. So, but if they had a theory of the case, what was it? I don't know. I, I, I don't want to attribute to them a, a theory based on my eight hours of interviews with them. Their review or investigation goes well past my tenure in government uh, into 2017, when the FBI continued to carry on their counterintelligence investigation. So uh, I think some of the allegations in the press and that, that uh, people like the you know, highly partisan people like Devin Nunes have made is that uh, this was a politicized investigation, that we were out to get Trump, we were out to try to prevent him from getting elected or to uh, hurt him when he was, and that couldn't be further from the truth. And so I, I think it's almost like a trolling exercise to see what it is that they could find out. But clearly it, it, it seems as though he's not going to issue any type of report. There was one, you know, indictment or charge for a doctoring of a, of a CIA email that went to the FBI by an FBI lawyer. But even there, and I think there's been a great confusion in the press about this, talking about Carter Page. Carter Page was never a source of CIA. And, and the term source has great meaning inside of CIA. He was a contact. And the language that Kevin Klein Smith put into the email, and he never, he should have attributed to his um, comment was saying that Carter Page was not a source, and he wasn't a source. As a source, you have to go through a certain amount of vetting and a testing process. He was a contact, and the CIA has lots of contacts of all different types of reliability and access and truthfulness. Uh, but again, Kevin Klein-Smith shouldn't have put that into the email and make it appear as though it was something that the agency said. Just one follow-up on that. Well, actually, two follow-ups on that. One is you write in the book that you did not see the Steele dossier, the Christopher Steele dossier that uh, uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign had commissioned until December, well, late in the process. Of 2016, correct. Of 2016. But were you aware of the allegations 
or some of the allegations in the Steele dossier about Carter Page, about Paul Manafort, about Trump being compromised, had any of them come to your attention prior to that? Well, some things came to my attention as a result of my being privy to certain intelligence and uh, that had been collected. And there were a lot of rumors uh, going around uh, the circuit. And I think I point out in the book that in late September, a number of journalists came up to me and asked whether I had seen a document regarding some you know, salacious claims about Donald Trump's activities in Russia. Uh, so uh, people were talking about things, but again, I didn't lay eyes on the document itself until December. In early December, I had heard reference to it because there was a big question about whether or not any of that material in the Steele dossier was going to be included in the intelligence community assessment. And so finally, I received a copy to actually see it myself. Uh, one more beat on this. Also, I thought this was really interesting in the book. You do reveal that as you were finalizing that intelligence assessment, which reached the conclusion that Vladimir Putin himself had ordered the Russian attack on the election, two of your top operatives in Russia House, which is the name for the branch that spies on Russia and deals with Russia, came to you and said they didn't agree with it. And yet you sided with your analysts who did reach that conclusion. If you can sort of flesh out what their, the basis for their disagreement was and why you sided with the analysts over them. Okay, so some context. Uh, one of the key findings of the intelligence community assessment was that Russia, we had assessed that Russia was interfering in the election and part of its objectives were to promote the prospects uh, that Donald Trump would get elected president. They had a clear preference for Donald Trump. CIA, FBI, uh, Office of Director of National Intelligence all had high confidence in that judgment. NSA, after initially having high confidence, decided to go with moderate confidence. Uh, before it was finalized, there were two senior CIA officers in the, what's called the the mission center, within which Russia House is, but these weren't individuals in Russia House. They were uh, senior officials, managers in that center. One was a experienced operations officer, one was an experienced analyst, but they both were in management positions. And they wanted to talk to me because they said that they felt that the judgment uh, about the Russian preference for Trump, they believe was only at moderate confidence as opposed to the high confidence that the CIA analysts gave it. And so I invited them up to my office and we had a good conversation. And uh, I had read all of the intelligence, including the raw intelligence. And I had my personal view was that I very much understood and, and was in alignment with the analyst's judgment of high confidence. And so I told these two officers to go and talk to the analysts, the authors of the assessment. They said they already had. I encouraged them to do it again. And I was not going to overrule the analysts who wrote that assessment uh, in favor of, of two senior officers who it was clear to me during my conversation that they had not read all of the intelligence. Now, assigning high or immediate confidence is a judgment call. And so I didn't you know, have anything against those officers raising that issue. I think that's what has to happen. And that's a natural process that uh, the intelligence community goes through to have those discussions. But at the end of the day, again, I was not going to overrule the analysts and the authors of the assessment. And so that judgment stayed at high confidence. 
those two officers uh, agreed with the judgment and attributed high, uh, moderate confidence to it, which is not all that different from high confidence. So, John, we'll come back to a couple of uh, Russia questions later in the interview, but I do want to get to the book, and I want to start in how you describe yourself as a young man. Pretty interesting revelations. You wore a diamond ring. You, earring, uh, diamond earring. Uh, I'm sorry, you wore a diamond <laughs> earring. Uh, you smoked uh, a bit of hashish in Cairo when you were a college student there. Uh, Let's not you, forget voting for Gus Hall well, in 1976. Well, I was getting to that, Isikoff. Don't okay. steal my thunder. That's the best part of it. In 1976, yeah. you voted for Gus Hall, the communist candidate for president. You got uh, a motorcycle and long hair, too. You, and quite a mustache back then, too. Absolutely. I was very impressive. That's right. And uh, I think you said that you uh, fancied yourself a character out of Easy Rider. I'm not sure you... You said which character it was, whether it was Jack Nicholson or Peter Fonda or or Dennis Hopper, who was my favorite. But how do you, I mean, for Americans out there who recall you as a tough, sometimes dour CIA man and Homeland Security advisor to the president presiding over, you know, the drone program, for example, how do you go from that man that you were back then to CIA director? Tell us very briefly how you ended up becoming a CIA director. I don't know if it's brief. I, I had the opportunity during my college years to spend some time overseas, first in Indonesia, then in Cairo, going to school there. And it spurred in me a wanderlust that I wanted to experience the world. And it also stimulated great intellectual curiosity in me. As a son of an immigrant, my father had always impressed upon me and my siblings that we needed to give back to this country. And so the idea of public service was something very much in my mind. So I found that the CIA offered me the opportunity to travel the world, to learn about it. And I had some foreign experience and some Arabic, maybe some street cred in terms of what I did or how I looked. And uh, I joined the, the agency. Uh, yes, I was more on the, the liberal progressive end of the, of the spectrum, but I very much enjoyed my time there. I started off in operations, but shifted to analysis. I felt that I was a better match for that and then bounced around over the course of my first 25 years because I wanted to have as many experiences as possible, both in Langley, in Washington, as well as overseas. And a lot just, I think, depends on one's willingness to work hard, to take assignments maybe that others don't want to take, to be in the right place at the right time, and uh, having the opportunity to be a daily briefer for President Clinton, gave me the opportunity to meet George Tenet, who asked me to be his executive assistant and subsequently his chief of staff. And then I got to meet some people in the White House and got to be a long distance supporter or advisor to the Obama for president campaign. And uh, by a series of very fortunate happenings, uh, I became CIA director. And one of the interesting crossroads in your CIA career was you wanted to be in operations. And then you ended up as an analyst. And there were people who advised you that you might not be, in terms of your own personality traits, your own character traits, not, might not be cut out to be an operative and better suited to be a, an analyst. Explain that. Yeah, I don't know if I wanted to be in operations. But when I applied to the CIA, and it was because I saw an ad in the New York Times, I sent in my very scant resume. But I, since I had overseas experience and I had Arabic, uh, the operations directorate, the director of operations, was most attracted to me. And so that's when my application was sent in. They were the ones that decided to hire me. 
And then once I got into the agency and started to go through some of that training, I felt that the skills that you need to be an operations officer, be able to cultivate relationships, represent yourself as something that you're not because you're living undercover, trying to find an individual's maybe vulnerabilities that you can exploit. I couldn't see myself doing that. It just was not consistent with the way I viewed myself and So when I got into the agency and I had the opportunity to serve what's called an interim assignment in the analytics side of the house, I felt that that was where I should be. So getting into the agency and operations opened the door for me. And it's not all that unusual when someone comes into the agency in a certain part of it, they find out that there's a a better place in the agency that matches their strengths, skills, and and interests. So uh, you had a long career, I think 25 years at the CIA, and you were there for some momentous events, 9-11, of course, uh, the response to 9-11, and uh, the run-up to the Iraq War. You were chief of staff at one point for CIA director Tenet at the time. You do write quite a bit about the controversy over the use of enhanced interrogation techniques, which are now widely viewed as torture, and your own discomfort when you read the reports of what what CIA officers were doing, and yet you didn't speak out or protest. And you make it clear in the book that you regret that. Just sort of walk us through why you think you did not speak out or protest at the time? And does it tell us something about, you know, bureaucratic culture that goes beyond that one matter for, and perhaps sheds light on why there's so many who don't speak out today about some of what's going on during Donald Trump's administration? Well, when I joined the agency in 1980, I knew that it had a controversial reputation and history in terms of types of things it was involved in such as toppling foreign governments or leaders or trying to get involved in uh, elections and other types of things in the midst of the Cold War. But I told myself I didn't want to be a part of anything that I personally found immoral, unethical, unprincipled, or inconsistent with what I thought were American values. In the aftermath of 9-11, clearly the CIA was the 911 organization that was tapped to go out to Afghanistan to try to uncover and stop follow-on Al-Qaeda attacks. And there were a number of them, including a very, very dangerous second wave uh, of attacks that was uh, designed to carry out strikes against the West Coast of the United States with aircraft. And so CIA was really in a race against time. And there was a sense also at the time uh, in the administration that there were going to be a lot of Al-Qaeda members who were going to be captured and what to do with them. And... It was clear that CIA was looked upon as uh, the organization that could carry out a covert action program where there would be uh, opportunities to render, detain, and interrogate individuals. And so a finding uh, was issued and a memorandum of notification was called an adjustment to a covert action program authorizing the CIA to carry out this program. And that, that authorization was done by the President of the United States. That finding and that program was deemed lawful by the highest legal advisory body in the executive branch, which is the Office of Legal Counsel in the Department of Justice. That program was briefed to the congressional leadership and uh, resources, uh, funds were allocated by the Congress 
for the CIA to carry out that covert action program. So it had all the features and necessary ingredients to be a lawful program. And that Office of Legal Counsel memo said that it was not torture. Now, I think people can rightly criticize those memos that were written by John Yu, saying that they really were not very well grounded in the law. But it's CIA's mission to carry out its responsibilities consistent with what its authorities are. And again, it was seen as a race against time. So I was the deputy executive director of CIA when that program was going on. And when I read the account of the waterboarding, I was not in the chain of command. My responsibility was like a deputy chief operating officer to ensure that all the different missions had the personnel, the resources, the logistics support, everything else. But I was aware that the agency was engaged in that program. And when I read the graphic details in that one cable, I really felt nauseous because it was the first time that I was confronted with something that was going on at the time of my service that I really felt was wholly inconsistent with you know, my moral compass. And I think what I, I thought should have been the CIA's moral compass. As I recount in the book, I spoke to some of my colleagues about my revulsion over it, including George Tenet. Now, again, the CIA felt that they were in a race against time, that there was information that needed to be elicited from these detainees, and it was a, a program deemed lawful, which is why I refused to call the program that was authorized as torture, because torture carries a lot of legal baggage and liabilities with it to include the potential for CIA officers to be charged either here in the States or abroad with you know, violations of, of law. Uh, so for those CIA officers who operated within the confines of that program, they were carrying out their duties. For those who exceeded those authorizations, they violated, I think, their oath and their commitments to the agency. And many of them were held accountable with uh, demotions or other types of uh, uh, censure and sanction, sanctions. Uh, but I, I didn't pound my fist on the table. I didn't say we shouldn't be doing this. Again, because it was a lawful program authorized by the President of the United States. Now, I, I decided I wasn't going to read more cables. I was going to do my job because I knew that CIA was so, so essential to keep our country safe. And I guess I rationalized my, you know, being quiet about it because the agency and I was involved in other important activities. So, but looking back on it over time in the subsequent years, I regretted not doing more to speak out. And I could have, and I believe should have. And so I say in the book that it was a simple mission. I guess the question, John, is that, that Mike is asking is you've done a lot of reflection on this and it's a you know brutally honest account. But why do you think you didn't? Was it about, you know, you're a good company man, you wanted to be loyal to your colleagues and to your patrons there? Was it about at all about personal ambition? Those are the hard things to, to have to confront when you do acknowledge that, as you, you put it, I think you said it was the most egregious sin of commission in your sin career. Of omission. Sin of omission. Uh, sin of omission in your career. Well, yeah. Why, why, why didn't I speak out? All government officials, I think, need to keep in mind what they are willing to do and not do. And I think the law, obviously, any government official has to follow the law. But to me, the law is a necessary but, but insufficient ingredient in terms of what government officials should do. There's the question of ethics and principles 
and values, and whether or not what somebody's being asked to do is consistent with the institutional ethics of the organization they belong to, as well as their own personal ethics. Uh, you know, I, I like to believe I have a, a strong moral compass, but you know, my moral compass didn't tell me at that point that I should, you know, speak out and, and it was a covert action program. You know, who could I, could I speak more to or complain to internally? Yeah, I guess I could have, but there was this real rush against time to prevent, you know, 3,000 or 30,000 more innocents being killed by Al Qaeda. And we knew they were going after chemical and biological and even nuclear weapons. And so and it was a time of anthrax attacks and the Washington sniper. And, and so with all of this almost an existential threat and the embers are still smoldering of the World Trade Center, yes, the individuals were being detained. They were being, you know, subjected to these enhanced interrogation techniques. At the time, I guess it, it wasn't, you know, blinking red the way maybe now we look back in, in 2020 hindsight and said, why do we do that? I'm so, you know, in many respects, I'm very fortunate. I didn't have to make that great moral decision about whether or not to authorize a program. If I was director, would I have done it? I'd like to think I wouldn't have, but I didn't have to make that choice. Yes. Yeah. In subsequent years, when I was at the White House, I had to make some real moral decisions, and I agonized over them. Right. So it's, sometimes it's easy for people on the outside to say, well, you should have done this, you should have done that. I believe I should have done more, which is why I did, you know, talk about it in my book. One very quick follow-up, Mike, and then I'll let you in. I wonder if you draw any any connection at all between your, you know, the regret that you've expressed over not speaking out more forcefully about the uh, harsh interrogation program and your very vocal and persistent criticism of Trump. I think you said you vowed never to remain silent again. What do you think? Exactly. I'm trying to keep to that vow. And I tried to do it even when I was when I returned. You're doing a good job on that front, by the way. <laughs> but even while I was in the Obama administration at the White House and at CIA, I spoke out. On, <laughs> on, on Guantanamo, on trials. Uh, yeah, I, I was the first official to acknowledge that the, that the United States government uses drones uh, to carry out lethal strikes against terrorists. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there was a lot of pushback on that. And, and so a number of things that I, I did, it was because I remembered that I fell short that one time and I didn't want to fall short again. I felt, now there are times I have to really think about whether or not it's, it's worth the candle to go forward, you know, in such a, you know, a, a forceful manner. But yes, I do draw a connection between my, my silence at that time and what I am doing now. You had two stints in Saudi Arabia. You were a, a Saudi expert, uh, and you write quite a bit about developments in Saudi Arabia. And by the way, just as a predicate for that, I don't know if you caught it, but just before we started this podcast, uh, President Trump said he's planning a big, beautiful party of Mideast leaders that will include Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, presumably at the White House. Is this um, the so party having, after his defeat or? Uh, I, I think before he uh, before he leaves office, um, even if defeated, uh, he will still have a few months more. But you spent some time with MBS as CIA director. You talk about having several meetings. He came across as well-read, intelligent, energetic, cunning, and politically savvy. Now, a lot of people 
knowing what we know today, look back on the period of time, 2015, 2016, and 2017 during his rise, and they look at it and say a lot of people at the highest levels of the U.S. government in two administrations were fooled by him. Did you have a sense of his authoritarian and even beyond that tyrannical instincts during the period that you were meeting with him? And if not, you know, why not? Well, I don't know what people mean when they say that we were fooled by him. Well, a lot of people bought into him as a reformer who was going to bring Saudi Arabia into the modern age and that he was the future of the country. Well, I think a lot of people did see him as being very, very politically ambitious and uh, very determined to make changes in the kingdom and that he was not going to brook opposition at the same time. So as we saw him displace uh, people uh, in the pecking order, including his his uncle, Prince Mukherin, uh, so he could move up, I think we saw him as somebody who was going to make changes, and he has made, made changes, you know, in terms of some of the, the social conservatism of Saudi Arabia. He's relaxed that, you know, has there's movie theaters, there's, you know, mixing of the genders. So, you know, there are a number of things that he has done to, I think, bring Saudi Arabia, in many respects, into the 21st century. Now, at the same time, he is a quintessential authoritarian leader. He wants to do things his way, and he doesn't want to have anybody criticizing him. And that's why... He has incarcerated a lot of people. He's mistreated, maltreated a lot of the activists who have been jailed, including women. And uh, he was responsible, I am convinced, uh, for the horrific murder and dismemberment of Jamal Khashoggi. So uh, with a lot of authoritarian leaders, uh, you do have a bit of a mixed bag. They do have governance responsibilities, and they will try to cater to certain elements of the population in order to maintain that support. But at the same time, they're going to suppress and oppress any type of political opposition or rivals, real or perceived, that they believe might stand in their way. So I think his true colors came out over time. But I don't think, I don't recall when we were in the government that we had a sense that he was going to be this this wonderful reformer who was going to bring democracy to to Saudi Arabia. No, we thought he was going to be a, a mixed bag. You write in the book, based on your own experience in Saudi Arabia, I am certain, and this is in the context of the Khashoggi murder, I am certain that such an audacious operation occurring inside a Saudi diplomatic mission would have required the direct authorization of Saudi Arabia's top leadership. It wasn't King Salman, it was MBS. And then you write, the subsequent failures of the Trump administration to hold the Saudi government to account for MBS's role in the murder of Khashoggi was one of the most egregious examples of unprincipled leadership I have ever witnessed in the U.S. government. What does holding the Saudis accountable for the murder of Khashoggi mean? Exactly that. It is um, speaking out publicly. Well, there are a number of things you can do. You can uh, you can freeze any non-essential diplomatic interaction with the Saudi government. You can cut back and curtail or cease and suspend uh, various military assistance, uh, security training assistance, other types of bilateral engagements. You can stop abruptly the support that's being provided to the Saudis as they continue their military adventure, their bloody military adventure in Yemen. There are very demonstrable things that they could do, but Trump has not 
done any of that. And they can make sure that they're not going to deal with MBS. They're going to say, okay, we're going to deal with others and really make him a pariah in many respects in the bilateral relationship. So there are things that they can do, but they, they don't. And when Trump was asked about this by Stephanopoulos, Trump's response was money. That's the reason why he didn't, in fact, take these bold steps against Saudi Arabia. So your reaction to uh, what the president has just said, that he's planning this big party uh, of Mideast leaders uh, that will include MBS. Uh, that's, that's outrageous. If he's going to allow Mohammed Salman to come to this country and have and be featured and hosted by a president of the United States after what his own intelligence community, the CIA, has reportedly said about MBS's responsibility for the murder and dismemberment of a U.S. resident person, I just find that a very telling of, of Donald Trump, obviously. You mentioned before that you were the first U.S. official to speak publicly about the drone program. Is that right? Uh, to to uh, confirm that, yes, drones were right. used in the lethal strikes against terrorists. And obviously you were intimately involved in overseeing that program, both as uh, Homeland Security Advisor in the White House and then as CIA Director. It became a somewhat controversial program, largely because of the perception, fair or not, that a lot of civilians were killed. I know you dispute the numbers of a lot of human rights organizations, but just a couple of questions. One is, in the president's sec- in President Obama's second term, you led a process uh, informally called the Playbook, which was an effort to basically establish some rules and, and guidelines to... to uh, oversee that program. And, and, and part of it was making it more transparent. I think there was also a plan to perhaps transfer the CIA's program to the Defense Department, which did not happen. How successful was that effort based on uh, what you all were able to achieve while you were still in office and what the uh, Trump administration has, has done since then? We don't hear about drones very much anymore, but that doesn't mean that uh, the program isn't still up and running. And, and I just, I'm just curious what you think happened to that, that playbook uh, initiative that you led. When we came into office in 2009, we inherited the, the program, the drone program that has very capable remotely piloted aircraft uh, launching missiles against targets with great precision. And, but we didn't have a, a, a playbook or a framework or a process that we were given. We had to develop that over time. And it was in the second half of the first term when we started to put together this framework that had very specific criteria. And uh, we wanted to codify it so that we would have something that is repeatable and that would give us the type of confidence that we had that we would tra- take these strikes only when necessary and do it with the greatest of care, precision, and judiciousness. And so it was in 2013 when that uh, framework was finalized, and it governed uh, how we uh, viewed these these terrorist strikes that we felt obliged to take when there was no recourse to stop these terrorists from carrying out their attacks. And so I, I do believe that the, the estimate that we had at the, toward the end of the Obama administration, that there were between 64 and 116 civilian deaths, was a, as good a review as we could conduct at the time in terms of the number of unfortunate and tragic civilian deaths that, that occurred during the Obama administration. 
And it is ironic that with uh, that the Obama administration, with all of its transparency about what it was doing with drones and terrorists and acknowledging strikes and mistakes, that we were roundly criticized by so many quarters for that, while the Trump administration, which has you know, put the shroud back over these programs and has not been transparent at all. You don't hear a peep in the media these days about the lack of transparency. So it does seem a bit ironic. And I don't know what has happened, although I have heard uh, that uh, the, the standards, the criteria have been relaxed for the conduct of, of these strikes by the counterterrorism uh, components that carry them out. What about the decision-making process? Because you put together a fairly rigorous process with these uh, civets meetings. And, and, you know, in the case of military strikes, I think they all had to be approved by the president. I'm not sure about the CIA strikes, but lots of lawyers involved. It sometimes took many weeks before a decision was made. Did President Trump move that decision authority to the battlefield? Has that process changed substantially, as far as you know? Yeah, I think you're mistaking me for a, an official in the Trump administration. Uh, I, I don't know. It, it, in the Obama administration, all the strikes had to be approved by the president. And was that was true of my, CIA strikes as well? Well, Dan, I think you're mistaken when you you know start try to assert that the CIA has such a program. To my knowledge, there's never been any type of government acknowledgement that the CIA has such a program. So. I'm talking about U.S. government counterterrorism strikes, and all of them uh, needed to be approved by the president, and they would, the approvals would go down through the chain of command, and approvals frequently would have a time limit on them, and it would be based on, again, certain conditions that had been met. And also, the, the governments of the countries where these strikes would take place also uh, needed to concur in those strikes. Just to be clear, you're not disputing that the CIA conducted drone strikes. You're just saying it you're hasn't not been officially classified, declassified. I'm just saying that you know what you make reference to. I, I cannot think of any uh, U.S. government acknowledgement of any type of CIA lethal program. Maybe I missed it in the press, and maybe you picked it up, but I, 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 <laughs> I think I think we did pick it up. I think we're going to uh, agree yeah. to disagree. <laughs> anyway, just to, as we wrap this up, I want to uh, return to Russia for a moment, because obviously there's a lot of concern about what the Russians and other foreign actors might be doing in the uh, final days of the election. Now, you signed a letter along with more than 50 other former intel intelligence officials uh, saying that the Hunter Biden emails, which were disclosed by Rudy Giuliani to the New York Post, have all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. If we are right, this is Russia trying to influence how Americans vote in this election. And we believe strongly Americans need to be aware of this. Now, a lot of us in the media have wrestled with how to handle these reports about the Hunter Biden emails. And uh, certainly uh, you make important points about Russian disinformation and influence operations. On the other hand, the Biden campaign or Hunter Biden's lawyer have not disputed the authenticity of those emails. And just in the last few days, one of the recipients of one of those emails, this former naval officer, Tony 
Bobolinsky has come forward and said, you know, he got some of these emails. They're real. There, in fact, were discussions among Hunter Biden and his business partners about doing business in China that would include holding equity for the former vice president. Does that give you pause that perhaps this is not a Russian influence information operation and the emails may, in fact, be real? Well, as you said, Michael, we, that letter did not say that it was. It just said that it, it bore a lot of those you know, hallmarks of, of Russian disinformation that we've seen in the past. It's very, very difficult for me, as well as for others, to determine exactly what is true and accurate and what is not. And one of the, of the hallmarks of the, of the Russian disinformation is that they frequently will take real stuff and make some minor adjustments, modifications to them. And so, uh, but that's my point. We haven't seen evidence of that. And it would seem to me that if Hunter Biden's lawyer or the Biden campaign could come out and show that, it would completely discredit the story right off the bat. Yeah, well, again, I don't know what they have access to in terms of old records, emails, whatever else. And uh, they have to be. They would have to be very careful in terms of making sure that any comment that they make about it would need to be 100% accurate. And so, again, I don't know, you know, where this is, is going, but I, there's just so much uncertainty out there. And unfortunately, there's so much politicization of what we're hearing coming out of the government, and especially from the director of national intelligence, that it's hard for me to give credence to anything he says. And so the report's saying that the, neither the FBI nor the intelligence community, you know, say that it's disinformation. Well, I haven't heard that from a, a, an official, you know, spokesperson from the FBI. It's, it's all people who may be, you know, anonymously talking to the press. So I, I just, I don't know. And again, when I read that letter that they asked me to sign on to, I wanted to make sure that it didn't go too far. It did seem, it did lean in the direction of just be wary, folks. And you we may be seeing things, uh, particularly in the last couple of weeks of the election, because I think the authoritarian leaders uh, and services abroad are going to do all they can to help Donald Trump get reelected. It's in their interest. I've got one last. Qu- I've got one last question, just relating to to Russia. We've never really gotten to the bottom of of what the true connections were between Putin, Russian intelligence, uh, and, and Donald Trump. There hasn't been the kind of you know, sort of full forensic investigation of Trump's finances. And I, I wonder if Joe Biden wins the election, do you think he or, or really his Justice Department ought to make investigating Trump's uh, financial links and activities uh, in regards to Russia and maybe other countries a priority? And would you consider that a national security or, or even moral imperative to pursue that sort of investigation? Oh, uh, I think, you know, you guys and the rest of your media colleagues have fallen down on the job in terms of not being able to expose the things that... Well, we don't have subpoena <laughs> power. We don't have subpoena power for the Well, record. hold on a second. <laughs> you know, know, some of us it. have done, have worked pretty hard on this well, front. Somebody, so. Yes, you have, but I still think there is a lot to be known about Donald Trump's financial connections with foreign entities and governments, especially Russia. And I do think it is going to come out eventually, or a lot of it. Uh, and that's the way you find out about you know, terrorists or proliferators or organized crime. It's those financial links. Mueller team never pulled them. And they didn't pull it. And we haven't seen the tax returns either. So I think there's still a lot 
that is, you know, going to be become known. But I, I don't believe a Biden administration should pursue any type of politically motivated investigation against the Trump uh, administration and, and folks. I think that if they're going to be investigations, whether at the local, state, or federal level, it should be with a, a predicate that there is a, a very uh, serious suspicion concern that crimes were committed, not to engage in a trolling exercise like this administration is doing. I, I think this is a very, very dangerous and fraught road that we're going down on. And so I, I do not believe that Biden is going to uh, sick the dogs on the Trump administration. But I think if there are civil or criminal uh, suits and investigations that are out there, that they should be pursued and Trump shouldn't be given a pass. Now, he's probably going to find a way to either pardon himself or you know, step down and allow Mike Pence to become president for a day so that he can pardon him. But that's not going to protect him against the, the state and local charges. Okay, last question. If, in fact, uh, Joe Biden is elected president of the United States, would you consider ending your retirement and going back into government in some capacity? Uh, no, no. I, I gave 33 and a half years or so to this country. I think that's enough. I'm spending a lot of time talking with university students, encouraging them to pursue public service careers. Um, I have no interest in going back and becoming a, a U.S. government official again. Uh, it's, it's not something that I, I want. It's not something that I, if nominated, I will not accept or whatever they <laughs> Right, right. Okay. Well, I'm sure you'll be consulted, if nothing else, uh, on yeah, all happy matters relating to uh, intelligence. Anyway, uh, John Brennan, thanks for joining us. The book, again, is Undaunted, My Fight Against America's Enemies at Home and Abroad. Thank you so much, Michael. Thanks, Dan. Best wishes.